Welcome to the Title Now pop-up webinar for this week. Um, I'm Melissa Murphy with The Fund, and we are sponsoring these webinars on a weekly basis to just bring topics of interest to fund members and to the real estate industry here in Florida. So welcome. If you miss one of the weekly webinars, we also push the audio content of these conversations out onto our podcast, which is also called Title Now. And uh, all you have to do is subscribe to the Title Now podcast the same way you subscribe to other podcasts. So if you miss one of these sessions at noontime, uh, you can always catch the podcast. And remember, every Thursday, at noon, 30 minutes, and they are free. Uh, so please take advantage of this. So living with this pandemic is our new reality. And while we have to be, we all have to be very focused on our personal health and safety and the safety uh, and health of our families, we are starting to kind of take a step back and look at now that this has been with us for a while and it is not going away anytime soon, what is the larger effect of this? What is the effect on the economy as a whole? Not perhaps just our business, but what's going on in other areas of the economy? And it takes an expert to lead us through uh, those discussions and um, help us through these times. And our guest today is perfect for that. So please welcome Dr. Aniban Basu. Uh, Dr. Basu has been my guest before on this webinar. And he also presented uh, very, very recently at Fund Assembly. So if you are interested in um, getting more information and commentary from him, you could certainly do that. And I'm co-hosting today with Ernie, Ernie Houck, who's our Executive Vice President of Strategy and Corporate Analysis. Uh, Ernie's here to ask the really smart questions of Dr. Fosu. Um, I am here to moderate. So, um, Dr. Basu, I re-listened to your assembly presentation um, earlier this morning, and my general impression was that you felt pretty good about things. Things were turning around and we were beginning to go on that upward side of the V curve. So, has anything changed? Well, thank you very much, uh, Alyssa, and uh, thanks to the fund, of course, and thanks to Ernie for being here, and thanks to this audience, as we are now in the second half of 2020. First half was quite something, wasn't it? Um, came into the year with so much promise, uh, and then so much of that was shattered. I've uh, spoken um, uh, in recent uh, weeks for the fund, and so I keep updating my theme. The theme this time is a tribute to 80s movies, uh, and I hope that life returns uh, to normal sooner rather than later, back to the future. You can see the uh, the picture there of Michael J. Fox uh, looking at his at his watch with some degree of alarm, and that's because uh, well, we only have half an hour, so I better get to it. I know that um, I know that we want this crisis to be over. We're tired of this already. You know, we Americans live fully. That's part of our problem, I think. 
is that we live so fully that we want to re-embrace life as it was. Uh, and when you look at global cumulative confirmed cases uh, as of, uh, uh, well, toward the end of June, uh, you know, you can see America is the global hotspot. There are others, Brazil and Mexico and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, I, I guess because we've been so anxious to reaffirm life and our way of living, so on and so forth, I think including in Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, so on and so forth, a number of southern states, that we're still in the midst of this crisis. And so any information I give you, unfortunately, from an economic perspective, is colored by the fact that we still have this ongoing pandemic. Um, obviously, we know that uh, Florida has been one of the hotspots uh, recently. This is, again, uh, cumulative confirmed cases of COVID-19, but for the U.S. Uh, uh, and does that, uh, you know, does that uh, put some clouds over what has been recently a pretty sharp recovery? It does. And I'll talk about that sharp recovery, but I'm perfectly well aware, as are you, that the pace of reopening the economy has slowed in some cases, for instance, in parts of California, uh, Certain aspects of the economy have been shut down again. Uh, and so that's with us. And, and actually, I tell you that this was not supposed to happen until the fall, you'll remember. That, you know, the notion was that we'd flatten the curve successfully into the summer and that, you know, come flu season, October, November, December, as temperatures cooled, as more people started coughing and sneezing and so on and so forth, uh, as, you know, schools reopened and universities reopened, so on and so forth, that we'd see that so-called second wave. Uh, it's not obvious to me that we expected such a resurgence of this, I would still consider it the first wave, which has migrated from, let's say, New York and Detroit and Chicago down to the south. But uh, here we are. Uh, and so that obviously colors the outlook. Uh, if you look at global cumulative confirmed cases, uh, you can see that the globe is still in the midst of the crisis. Now, you've, you've seen it. You know, the situation is not nearly as bad in New Zealand, which at least for a time was COVID-19 free and in China and in Europe and so on and so forth, the Italian economy is opening up as are others. But because of what's happening in North and Latin America, North and South America, we, uh, you know, we're still in the midst of the crisis. So again, as I go through the economic data, I'm mindful of this as are you. Let's talk about the economy. A lot of people have been taking a lot of days off recently and not voluntarily. So Ferris's day off was Purely voluntary. He, you know, was supposed to go to school, didn't do it, had the day of his life. They made a movie about it. Um, uh, you know, I, um, so one of the things we've been obviously monitoring on an ongoing basis is the employment data. Um, and, and because sometimes the monthly data and the quarterly data have not neatly captured the pace of erosion in the U.S. labor market, a lot of us economists have turned to high-frequency data. In fact, some of us have turned to daily data. You know, I look on a daily basis at airline reservations. I look at uh, uh, TSA, uh, you know, number of passengers passing through TSA. I look at restaurant reservations, just really high-frequency data to see how rapidly these, this economy is coming back to life. And based on those data, at least, the worst of this was in late April. If you look at American mobility, it was late April that was the worst of times for this economy. Now, here's some more high-frequency data. This is initial claims for unemployment insurance. Uh, we now have this, uh, uh, you know, through late June. Uh, and you can see here, you know, pre-crisis, we were looking at uh, around uh, initial weekly claims of around 210,000. You can see starting uh, in mid to late to March, the surge uh, during the week ended March 28th, we had nearly 7 million people file for unemployment in one week. In fact, for two consecutive weeks, we were above 6.5 million. 
For the week ending June 27th, we're back down to 1.4 million, but that is still a massive number of people losing jobs, obviously. And these data continue to be uh, updated. Uh, and so, you know, with each and every passing week, yes, the economy is reopening, but more and more business owners say, you know, I, I couldn't make it. I didn't make it. I'm going to have to close this restaurant. I'm going to have to close this store, so on and so forth. And of course, when we've seen the, you know, announced bankruptcies of JCPenney, Neiman Marcus, uh, J. Crew, you know, those bankruptcies play out in the form of store closings. And so, you know, those workers often find their way onto um, unemployment insurance, even as the broader economy is reopening. Now, that said, this can be misleading. Why? Because uh, what this captures is people losing jobs. What it fails to capture are people securing new jobs. And it is conceivable that an individual could lose a job one day, file for unemployment insurance successfully the next day, let's say, and then get a job, or a replacement job, the day after that. I'm not saying it happens often. I'm just saying it's possible. So what matters more is continuing claims, the number of people who are on unemployment insurance at any given time, this is in millions. Uh, and, you know, you can see here, you know, we've seen some progress here, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the number of people on continuing claims. Indeed, we've seen progress, as you know, from the labor market, generally speaking. Um, this is monthly job, uh, jobs in America. Uh, two axes here, had to create two axes. So all the data on here through February of 2020 are in blue indexed to the left. On the right, the last four months for which we have employment data, and the reason I had to create a new axis is that in, uh, in, in, sorry, in April, our nation lost uh, 20.8 million jobs. And so if I tried to index all these data on one axis, all these bars basically just disappear, uh, save that one. And so the last four months for which we have data are indexed to the right, March, April, May, June of 2020, you can see again, you know, I really believe the worst of, uh, you know, the worst of the, the economic times was in late April. The National Bureau of Economic Research recently announced that the recession began in February. One could, one could argue, pretty compellingly, I think, that by May, it was over. Because in May, the nation uh, adds uh, uh, 2.7 million jobs. Uh, and then in June, according to the preliminary estimate for the Bureau of Labor Statistics, we had 4.8 million. So we added 22 million jobs during the economic expansion cycle, over a 113-month winning streak, uninterrupted winning streak, 22 million. We lost almost precisely that number of jobs uh, in, uh, in uh, March and April, 22.2 million jobs. And then we've recovered almost precisely one-third of those jobs in May and June, the 2.7 million added in uh, May and the 4.8 million added in June. And so... You look at that, you look at the shape of these bars, it sort of looks like a V, if you look at it carefully, just sort of the end of the series. And that's what we've been saying at the fund. We've been saying that, uh, at least when I've been delivering webinars on behalf of the fund, is that it was going to be a V-shaped recovery, that it would be a, an aggressive initial pace of recovery. That's exactly what it has been. The same is true when you look at other data series, retail sales. You know, so retail star sales start slipping in February. So even though I'd argue the crisis began economically on March 9th, when the Dow Jones fell more than 2,000 points and the financial markets finally realized that this, this, was, this was a real economic event, by February, you might remember that you and I had started to social distance in various ways. We were staying six feet apart, mind you, but we were fist pumping and we were elbow bumping and doing the kin play toe tap. So by February, that behavior was starting to impact retail activity. 
So the first down segment here is that's February of 2020. Then, of course, March, as we're shutting down the economy, retail sales plummet. And then even further in April, as mobility hits its nadir. Based on mobility data, let's say um, data based on cell phones and how, you know, how the cell phones are moving, which implies how the people are moving. It was roughly in the last week of April that we hit our nadir for mobility. But then after the economy starts to reopen, you'll remember that uh, a neighboring governor, Governor uh, Kemp in Georgia starts opening his economy circa a April 20th. Florida uh, follows shortly thereafter. Uh, that by May, as parts of the economy are opening up again, uh, stores are opening up and people are shopping. And one of the things that happened is that, you know, when people lost jobs, some people got that $600 a week check from the federal government on top of their state unemployment insurance benefits. A lot of people in April also got that $1,200 check. Maybe they got it even earlier than that. Uh, and so, actually, by April, Americans were stockpiling cash. The savings rate coming into this crisis, the household savings rate, was around 8%. By April, it was 33%. And then the economy reopens. And so May retail sales, though economists had expected a 7% increase in May retail sales compared to April, they were up 17.7%. Again, if you look at the last uh, you know, few bars there on this slide, it looks like a V. Don't get me wrong. It's only a partial expansion so far. This is national non-farm employment from June of 2019 to June of 2020. You know, we're still down 13 million jobs. I, mean, I, 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 I by, by the way, when I say a V, I don't mean really a V as it turns out. A V is comprised of two linear segments of equal length. This is not that. This is an awkward V. This is a sharp downturn economic activity, what we experienced in, in, uh, in March and April in particular followed by a sharp upturn, but not complete recovery. Not complete recovery. Uh, the unemployment rate for the nation, as I'm speaking to you, is 11.1%. The unemployment rate as, I, as we came into this crisis was 3.5%. How long, you know, that was a 50-year low. And if I ask Ernie or anybody else, you know, how long did it take us to get to a 50-year low in unemployment? Ernie would know, oh, Anibon, 50 years. So it is conceivable that I will never again see 3.5% unemployment in my lifetime. Um, and that makes me sad. But it also reflects uh, the, the sharp downturn in economic activity. Now, if you think about Florida, and of course, uh, we are thinking about Florida. Florida, now these data only go through May of 2020 because the state employment data are lagged vis-a-vis -vis the national employment data. So I was showing you national employment data through June of 2020, but only, this, uh, only uh, May is available uh, as the latest date for the state-level data. But you know, it gives you some sense of how long or how far we have to go for full recovery in Florida. Now it says non-farm employment because farm employment are captured by a different agency, the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, and those data are not additive to these, which come from a component of the US Department of Labor. But Florida has lost, between May of 2019 and May of 2020, 850,000 jobs, or nearly 10% of its uh, total employment. And of course, the hardest hit sector is leisure and hospitality. That's mostly hotel and restaurant employment. Because you know, some of us benefit from the fact that we can work, work remotely. A lot of us in real estate, for instance, or in economics, as I am, we can wor work remotely. We work in front of computers. But in many industries, of course, uh, services have to be delivered uh, in physical proximity to the customer. That's true in retail, for instance. Uh, not talking about e-commerce, obviously, but brick-and-mortar retail and so on and so forth. So the second category that's lost the most number of jobs, almost 124,000 in Florida over the last 12 months, which we have data is the retail trade, wholesale trade, transportation utilities category. So, but you know, most segments of the economy obviously have lost jobs. And uh, you know, obviously the 
you know, Florida is home to many major metropolitan areas. And one of the things I could do for you as a fund stakeholders is to show you data for major metropolitan areas. That would be a heavy lift. Uh, but I'm going to do it nonetheless because I care. Jacksonville. Jacksonville, 50,500 jobs lost between May of 2019 and May of 2020. This is for the metropolitan area, 7% of job totals. Now, the leisure hospitality sector comprises a smaller share of Jacksonville area employment. I understand, you know, St. Augustine, all that. But it's not Orlando. I'll get to Orlando in a second. More of an industrial economy, more manufacturing, more logistics, distribution, and those activities held up better, generally speaking, than did a lot of other activities. And so Jacksonville, generally speaking, held up better by national standards and by Florida standards. What about Tampa, St. Pete? 102,400 jobs lost, 7.4% of jobs. Again, you'll see in each of these regions, Legion Hospitality takes it on the chin, but Tampa has a very diversified economy. Obviously with shipping and higher education, financial services, not to mention tourism. And so this economy is also another one that's held up relatively better. Miami, an epicenter of uh, COVID-19, of course, uh, lots of shutdown activity there. Big leisure hospitality sector, 10.7% job loss, nearly 300,000 jobs lost for the last uh, 12 months. And again, this has a lot to do with the structure of these economies. Um, and then Orlando, which has lost 16.4% of its jobs because, you know, I mean, I, Disney is just not as fun by Zoom. It's not. Um, and, uh, and so uh, the roller, quite, uh, roller coaster rides seem quite... Uh, you know, quite modest, uh, just sitting in a chair. So it, the point is, um, this was an economy that was structured to be damaged by social distancing directives, and it has been. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, so, you know, Orange County, Central Florida, generally, I mean, a lot of that obviously is around hospitality. You can see a reflection of that in the data. Now, that said, and I know that Florida is going through something right now in terms of rate of infection. We all understand that. But when the Florida economy opens up in earnest, these parts of the economy, these, you know, Legion Hospitality, Orlando, and Miami, so on, so stand to be the areas that really bounce back the fastest. I mean, they dip the furthest, they stand to bounce back the fastest, something to think about going forward. Obviously, another aspect of economic life uh, is uh, unemployment. Uh, the unemployment rate in June dipped to 11.1%. The unemployment rate uh, among women dipped uh, from uh, over 14%. Uh, to 11.6%, uh, uh, sorry, 11.7%. The unemployment rate for men is 10.6%. Um, as of June, many women have been hurt because many uh, by this, for various reasons, one of them, of course, is health. I mean, a lot of uh, women have been on the front lines of delivering care, and easy majority of nurses are women. So female unemployment this cycle, which is different from the previous cycle when men were hit harder, um, a lot of women uh, became sick, lost jobs uh, in the healthcare settings, at least for a time. But also women tend to be more aligned to sectors like leisure hospitality and retail trade. Men tend to be more aligned with industries like manufacturing construction. And to date, those have held up a bit better. And I'll show you some construction data in a moment. Um, again, the wild card here is what? Public health. And that makes it very difficult for an economist to predict the economy for the balance of 2020 into 2021. It just does. Now, here are some projections, you know, uh, historic data here. All beds are uh, needed is in purple. ICU beds, intensive care unit beds is in green. And invasive ventilators needed is in blue. And you can see here, we've had some success in this country. I know that Europe is saying, don't come. I get that. I understand why they're saying that. But 
Of course, we said it to them as, uh, first, but set that aside. <laughs> we've made some progress flattening the curve. Don't get me wrong. But look at that purple shade area. You see that purple shade area? Again, this relates to all beds needed. That's the so-called zone of uncertainty as we head into, uh, into October. And of course, remember, October is before it's supposed to get really bad again. So, you know, again, any forecast that I give you is based on a really shaky foundation, a really shaky public health foundation. I recognize that. But I do not want anyone to forget the fact that we've made some progress. Because sometimes when you look at media reports, you can forget that how much worse things were, at least from a national perspective, in late April. Uh, and, you know, if, if New York and Michigan and other states in the North Washington state are any indication, at some point the rate of infection is going to fall in Florida, Texas, so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, we are testing more. Uh, <laughs> I've heard some things. If we didn't test, you know, we wouldn't have so many cases. No, we still have the same number of cases. We just wouldn't know about them. But, uh, but this is COVID-19 test generated through June of 2020. And you can see, you know, our medical toolkit has really improved. We have more ventilators now. We have more ICU beds now. We, you know, we have more testing capacity now. We have, uh, you know, more tracing, you know, sort of tracing people's whereabouts. So we have more tracing capacity now. But here's what we don't have yet. We don't have a vaccine. And that can unite us, right? Some people who say, I don't want to wear a mask. Some people say, got to wear a mask. You know, I, I get it. You know, it's, it's just the nature of America these days. What can unite us a vaccine? And we have well over 100 clinical trials taking place around the world, um, preclinical and clinical trials. And, you know, Pfizer just recently announced that they've seen some real progress. But we had a clinical trial for Moderna and some others showing some promise here. We're going to get on top of this. Um, we're going to find a vaccine. I really, really believe that. And, and part of the optimistic forecast I'm going to give you for the balance of this uh, webinar relates to the fact that I believe in our scientific community. Uh, and when Pfizer says that we might have a vaccine by the fall, I take encouragement from that because there are a lot of other life sciences companies working on this. I mean, it's going to come from somebody, Gilead Sciences, Regeneron, Pfizer, Merck, Sanofi Aventis, Novartis, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Bayer AG. Somebody's going to get this right. There's too many, too many IQ points behind this effort. Uh, and obviously, at this point, uh, America is one of the COVID-19 hotspots would benefit, I would argue, disproportionately uh, from such a vaccine. I mean, Jonas Salkin in 1955 at the age of 40 with polio without a computer. So it can be done. And, uh, and so what's coming to America? Let me hit the home stretch here. Uh, and by the way, let me slow down before. Uh, Ernie, do you or anybody else, do you have any questions before I hit the home stretch here? Not yet. I uh, just said uh, want to see uh, the transition to the real estate piece. So, um. Oh, very good. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, first of all, we are not through the worst quarter of our lives, statistically speaking. It's over. Um, I've shown you so, some forecasts, some standing forecasts for what happened in the second quarter of 2020. We don't have GDP data yet, but JP Morgan Chase predicted a 40% decline in GDP conference for 39.5%, global tax 39%. By comparison to the worst quarter of the Great Recession, late 2008, the economy shrank 8.4%. Um, so let's talk a little bit about real estate. Uh, we look at this through various lenses. Let's, um, let's talk about construction activity. So we've talked about this. Let me talk about non-residential, and then I'll get to residential. Um, one of the things that occurred prior to the downturn was abundant construction of commercial space, meaning retail space, uh, uh, also facilities that uh, improve the retail experience. So a lot of 
gyms and bowling alleys and other things, movie theaters built in conjunction with malls or other retail centers to try to compete with Amazon and other e-tailers to try to give an experience that uh, Amazon, Jeff Bezos cannot replicate. Um, so that was one. We built a lot of hotel rooms. We built a lot of office space. I mean, really expensive office space. And people wanted to move into class A and A, class A plus office space in part because recruitment retention was an issue. So when you're doing interviews and trying to attract talents, you want to impress the interviewee with the quality of space. So I could sit in class B space, but if they come in and see my class B space, my 1980s type architecture, they're not going to take the job. They want to be in a success address. And so a lot of people poured, employees poured into class A and class A plus space. Um, and so we built a lot of wonderful office buildings just before this pandemic. You can see here in terms of non-residential construction put in place, it's non-residential construction spending. It's been dipping recently through May. And you're going to see more of this, that vulnerability play out. Um, if you look at the confidence of construction firms across America, one of the organizations with which I'm associated is uh, the Construction Financial Management Association, CFMA. These are the CFOs largely of America's construction firms, the chief financial officers. This is the most recent survey we conducted of their confidence. Uh, we call this survey the Confindex, and you can see here it's fallen off the table. Uh, the year-ahead outlook index for uh, construction firms, uh, it's a subcomponent of that index, the year-ahead outlook index is worse than it was in December of 2008 during the midst of the financial crisis. So a lot of commercial construction folks, people in commercial real estate are looking at some tough times, and obviously part of this is behavioral shift uh, because it's been discovered that more of us can work productively and remotely. I had thought that as more people start to work remotely, that what we would find is that productivity would decline. Many firms around the world are reporting that productivity is actually up because people are not having to deal with grinding commutes, are not um, tempted by the allure of the, uh, the, uh, the coffee maker, are, are getting into chit chat with their, um, with their coworkers, and of course, didn't have to go through March Madness. Uh, and so uh, now, with respect to residential, here's what I'll say about residential. I think Florida is going to come out of this brilliantly. And I'm not simply saying that to pander to the audience. I'm looking at things like mortgage applications and the fact that I'm settling myself on a condominium on August 3rd in Orlando at the Solaire, uh, if you're familiar with that building. Um, uh, the, the issue in, in Florida is what it has been, a lack of inventory. And that's actually driving up prices. And yes, I know that a lot of the city, I'm in Bowles for Baltimore, but New York, Boston, you know, Chicago, looking at Florida property, saying, look at this uh, infection rate. Is this the right time to buy in Florida? So that might cause some hesitation. And we have seen over the last couple of weeks a decline in mortgage applications, both refinance and purchase money. But when you look at supply and demand, the fact that a lot of New Yorkers, Bostonians, Chicagoans, others are saying, next time this happens, if it happens again, I want to be able to leave and go someplace and, and just shelter in place, but someplace you know, that's not so crowded, I'm going to Florida. Uh, and so I think you're going to see a lot of demand in the mortgage applications data, at least until the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, I think bear that out. And so my conclusion is this, um, good morning economic expansion. Obviously play on the words of uh, the movie, Good Morning Vietnam. The initial phase of recovery from the crisis, as we have said, will be sharp, profound, and most welcome. Hey, economists can't say this often. We were right. <laughs> we were right. I want everyone in the webinar to appreciate that. We were right. I'll probably never say it again. Interest rates are still low. So as people come into this economy, re-engage this economy, interest rates are low, mortgage rates are low. Pent-up demand is high for all kinds of things, including housing. 
there's a need to rebuild inventories, including auto dealerships. People are anxious to meet again, go to restaurants, casinos. Did you see what happened when Las Vegas opened up its casinos? People could not wait to get in. You know, they want to see a movie and not on Netflix and not in their home, but they want to watch the Baltimore Orioles, which is the most beautiful thing a human being can do. Melissa doesn't understand this, sadly, uh, but it is. Uh, and engage in other most wonderful of human activities. May's job support was an absolute stunner. That's when we realized that the economists who had been saying, this thing is going to bounce back sharply were right. One way to look at this is say economists missed the mark by 10.5 million jobs because economists were predicting roughly an 8 million jobs decline in May. Instead, we got that 2.7 million to the upside. But another way to look at it is that economists missed it by two weeks. The economy opened up faster and sooner than many people realized. And then came June and 4.8 million jobs. But I admit, I know, you know that while the recovery has begun, these remain treacherous times, obviously, um, uh, uh, you know, especially for construction activity. But when I say that, I mean really non-residential construction. I think the residential sector is going to be just fine, uh, especially the market for new homes. I think that's going to be, you know, really the inventory is low and the new home builder conference should pick up sharply. And by the way, we saw a big pickup in May in, in residential building permits. So I think I'm right on that one as well. And with that, Ernie, I give it to you. Uh, well, thanks, Anabar. Um, one big question I had is obviously we've got the the risk uh, with the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic. Is are there any other risks that you see that maybe you haven't uh, uh, addressed in in your presentation that could really have a, a, a strong impact on how we recover? Two things that really come to mind, Ernie. One is state local government finances which have been shattered in many cases. Now, Florida is a little bit different because, you know, in, in a lot of the country, the, one of the big issues is lack of income tax collections. Florida is different along that dimension, right? It depends heavily on property tax collections, um, uh, you know, and, 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 and retail sales. Um, so, and, and retail sales obviously have been hit for obvious reasons. So, uh, those tax collections. So, uh, but you know, that's one. So I, I'm still expecting as of right now that when Congress gets back to it um, over the next few weeks, that they're gonna pass another stimulus package. And part of that stimulus is gonna be for state local governments trying to balance budgets for fiscal years 2020 and 2021. I believe that, uh, we'll see. But that, that, that's the way the chit chat, when you're starting to hear people come on CNBC, MSNBC, whatever it is, Congress people are starting to talk in that way that they're working in a bipartisan fashion, senators, uh, House of Representatives folks. Uh, both uh, talking this way. So that's one. Second thing, we have a presidential election this year. And that's a big deal. And Florida is going to help decide this as it always does. Please, no more hanging chads, if you don't mind. But um, uh, that's going to be a source of uncertainty, right? Where are taxes headed? Because if all of a sudden the market starts looking, let's say the housing market says, oh boy, taxes are about to go way up. If that seems to be the conclusion people reach as we approach the election or afterwards, well, watch out. Right? That's not good for real estate. Because often with real estate, including in Florida, what are people doing? They're spending discretionary funds to buy that second home, that third home, so on and so forth. Or take that vacation in Orlando. If they think that their discretionary spending part is going to go down because tax is going to go up, that can't be good for Florida real estate or Florida's economy generally. So those are two things I would worry about in addition to COVID-19. And uh, the other question I had is in general related to the mortgage industry. Is there any concern there given you know the fact that do have the current forbearance uh, 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 requirements on them? Are, are we going to have any liquidity issues there? Here, here, again, here's what I think, Ernie. I think that it is possible that we would have had liquidity issues that 
banks and other financial firms because of this forbearance issue. Look, a lot of people are missing their payments. So we know that. But two things to consider. One is, and we all know this, banks came into the crisis in tremendous financial shape with lots of capital and lots of liquidity. And indeed, they continue to see lots of liquidity. Liquidity is not an issue for them for the most part. That, that said, forbearance and this economic downturn creates a challenge. So the second part of the answer is the reason I'm not very worried is the Federal Reserve. Because the Federal Reserve has said what? We will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to keep this economic expansion going, whatever it takes. We'll buy junk corporate debt. You know, we will you know, infuse uh, the financial system with even more liquidity. We'll take our balance sheet even higher. Uh, and so uh, I just do not expect to see the kind of financial crisis, anything near that, uh, that we saw in 2008, 2009. It's just not there. I just do not see it. I could be proven dead wrong. You know, a major U.S. bank could go bankrupt tomorrow and I look like a fool. I understand that, right? All it took was Lehman Brothers to go belly up on September 15th of 2008 and we had a full-fledged financial crisis. It doesn't take much. That said, as far as I can see, the major banks, whether Bank of America or Wells Fargo or whomever, they look like they're in phenomenal financial shape. Uh, and, uh, and some of them actually have so much liquidity that they'd actually like to make more loans, not fewer loans. Well, Dr. Basu, thank you again for sharing your wit and wisdom with us. Um, I know it was a quick 30 minutes, um, a lot of concepts and, and perspectives to share in that short period of time. This was the um, easiest webinar I've ever had to host. <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, and thanks, Ernie, for taking the time for doing that. So to all of our attendees, thank you all for registering and supporting our uh, pop-up webinar program. And of course, as always, thank you for your support of the fund.